episode 17. Hope everyone is doing great. New episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to write a review on iTunes and it's picked and it's read at the end of the podcast, I will um, send you a gift all the way from Greece. If you'd like to donate, please do so through the link in the description. I'll also have a link for my Facebook um, page, my podcast page, and also my personal Instagram page. If you'd like to send me a message. I love hearing from you. I love um, talking to my audience. So if you want to ask me anything or... Tell me anything, please send me a message. I love hearing from you. Now let's get to the episode. Hope you like it. See you. Bye-bye. We have talked a bit about Alexander. We have talked about him naming cities and stirring shit up in the last episode as regent to the king. So let's talk about how he looked. We think he was of average height, according to Arian. Average height for Arian isn't the same as ours. The average height for most Greeks that period is 165 to 170 centimeters, or 5'4 to 5'7. It has been said that Alexander, though, was on the shorter side. But he was a very muscular and stocky lad, and he was a very good runner. I kind of like to think of him like Maradona, you might have heard of him. The hair, he was a 80s or 90s football player from Argentina. <laughs> a lot of cocaine, a lot of women. A great player, though. Uh, the hair, though, it looked they looked alike. Sexy, messy, and big, you know, like a lion's mane. Alexander's hair was blonde, though, and his skin was fair, light-colored. He was such a good runner, apparently, they wanted him to run in the Olympic Games. But his answer was, yes, as long as I compete amongst other kings. His eyes were also very interesting. One was grey-blue and the other brown. Iris heterochromia, it's called. And now, just to bring him down a little bit, he had a small, he had, he had a small, he had small and pointy teeth and a high-pitched voice. He would walk quickly, a habit he adopted from his old teacher, Leonidas. His head was always slightly tilted back and to the left. Something you can see in the podcast logo as well. We don't really know why. Opinions vary. Some say he was doing it by himself to make himself appear more grandiose or something along those lines. Others that his skeletical system was messed up. From Plutarch, we learn that Alexander had a personal sculptor, Lysippos, which was first used by Philip, then Alexander. Alexander preferred him because he was the only one who kept accurate measures of his body. Lysippos is also the sculptor of uh, the Boxer at Rest. You might have seen this uh, sculpture. It's personally one of my favorite statues. It's a boxer sitting down, looking up and looking like he's just had the shit beat out of him. He also had a personal painter, Apelis, who painted him in a darker complexion than what he was. He wasn't like that, according to Plutarch, but even Apelis kept his head tilting tendencies. He liked the shaved look. Now in our storyline, he was 16 years old, so he probably didn't have he couldn't have had a big bushy beard, if he, even if it was up to him. But even later in life, he preferred to shave. This is rare for a 4th century Greek. Again, opinions vary. 
about why he chose to do so. Some say it was to honor the god Apollo, god of music and the sun. Alexander enjoyed music. He liked singing and playing music, so perhaps that's why. There is a story in Plutarch in the life of Theseus, Theseus, how you'd say him. Uh, he had commanded his men to shave before the Battle of Gargamela in 331, so the enemy would have one less place to hold them by. So it could have been for practical reasons. For me, he probably just couldn't grow a beard and he didn't want to look like Che Guevara, so he decided to shave everything off. And one more thing before we go, he also smelled amazing. We, also, we all know someone, right, who even when they sweat, they smell amazing. Well, Alexander was one of those people. <laughs> now, back to our story. We left Philip and his men pillaging the Scythians after he defeated them in battle. On the way back home, the Trivali decided to attack. They even asked to take some of the spoils. Philip said, yeah, man, absolutely. Has your dick been sucked today? Because I would love to do that too. No. Philip didn't take it kindly and a tough battle took place. Philip is stabbed in his thigh with a sarissa by one of his own men. It was all in the heat of battle, so, you know, mistakes happen. The spear went through his leg and even killed his horse. He lost consciousness for a little bit as he had lost a lot of blood. The other Macedonians freak out, they flee the battlefield, taking Philip with them, thankfully, and begin to run back to Pella. The Trivali asked for some of the spoils, and they ended up taking the lot. In this moment, they probably thought they could rule the world, but Alexander will sort them out in the future. We're going to talk about them again, the Trivali. The damage done to his leg is going to stick with him for the remainder of his life. He would always have a limp. He nearly died, right? It's a serious injury. It took him a few months before he could even start a new campaign. His legs would need shin splints of different sizes. We still don't know which leg was injured, but in the tomb of Vergina, discovered by Manolis Andronikos, there was a pair of splints found that were of different sizes. The left one being 3.5 centimeters shorter than the right. To this day, there isn't a consensus about who is buried there, but, the, but this detail points heavily at Philip. While Philip was off fighting the Scythians and the Trevelyans, the Amphictyonic Council declared a holy war on the Amphysians, as we have said. When Cotyphos told them that if they don't pay, they would have to go against Philip, I'm sure they were just like, really? Another holy war? You know, just tell us you want to get Philip in here and we can get it over with. When the Third Sacred War ended back in 346, Philip had given Nikia to the Thessalians. In Nikia there was a fort that controlled the hot gates, or Thermopylae in Greek. The Thebans desperately wanted this fort. In fact, they were so desperate, or you could say they felt entitled to control it, they even went over unannounced, as you would if you wanted to be a badass, kicked out the Thessalian guard and installed their own. So it's like they're saying we, as Thebans, have no respect for the Macedonians or any ally they have. You know, we don't like him, we're sick of them, whatever. So as you know, Philip didn't get along with the Athenians. Swoon. Swoon. Who knows where that's from? <laughs> 
soon uh, soon it's going to get sorted out i guess is one way of looking at it so uh, now he can proudly say he's uh, he's also on the thebans shit list the lads from amphisa find out about thebes doing their thing you know kind of revolting so they say fuck it we're not paying the fine a fine that was imposed, as I said last time, but just to remind you, because they were charged for being sacrilegious. You can't cultivate sacred land and hope to get away with it. After Philip was nearly killed by the Trevelyans, Trevolians, however you want to call them, he went back to Pella. Finally, he was home. He stayed for about a year, which was quite a long time for Philip's standards. He always preferred to be on the road, campaigning with his friends you know he's a simple guy you know <laughs> but his legs but his leg got mauled so unfortunately for him he has to spend some lovely quality time with all his lovely wives including olympias which i'm sure she was thrilled because <laughs> they all they didn't get along you know there was a massive thing everyone knew that they hated each other and him staying there for about a year is probably what made her plan his assassination you know but anyway we'll save that for a future episode at the start of 338 chill time was over and he began his march to central greece he had support from the thessalians Enianes. Volopes, Theotians, and Aetolians. So the gang starts off. To begin with, they go between the mountains of Iti and Calidromos. This area was part of Dorida, a member of the Amphictyons and ally of Philip. He fortified a town there named Kitinio, 10 kilometers away from a passage that led to Amphisa. Then he does the unexpected and doesn't attack Amphisa, but heads southeast towards the valley of Kifisos on the border with Fokida and Viotia. He takes Elatia. This would make his travels to Amphisa much easier, and he's only two or three days away from Athens and Thebes. So imagine somewhere between there. This shows us that he hasn't come down to central Greece just to beat up Amphisa. He wants his issues with Athens and Thebes resolved. He doesn't just grab his weapons and charges at them. He sends ambassadors, the Macedonians Amindas and Klerchos, two, Thessal two Thessalian tetrarchs, Daochos and Thrasideos, and many other representatives of the other cities that were following him. He tells Thebes, basically, form an alliance with Macedonia, forget the Athenians, or at least let my men cross the Voetian border and reach Athens faster without delaying us, and we shall give you any spoils we would get from them. If you decide to go against us, you're not going just against reason, you're going against all our lovely friends we have brought with us. And to finish off, he lets them know that he would be willing to give Nikia to Locrida, uh, an area that was occupied by Thebes. So it's like he's giving it back to them, but without actually going through with it. Nikia is a fort that they desperately wanted, as I mentioned before. Thebes now has to take into consideration what Philip is saying. It's quite a tempting offer, right? He gave them the option of becoming key players again in central Greece as they won for a short period of time. While at the same time, they recognize Philip's power. Now, this final point is 
probably what put them off. Uh, they didn't give their answer straight away. Ambassadors from Athens also arrived. Now, let's a little backstep. How they arrived there and what happened. Uh, when the Athenians heard that Philip had taken Elatia, they freaked out. Big time. We have the Mosinis on the crown's speech and the Odoros who, um, who has read the Mosinis and they give pretty much the same facts. It was late one night, apparently, when someone announced that Philip had taken Elatia. The lords left their tables, apparently, while they were still eating. They rushed to the market, or Agora, as we say in Greek, and set fire to tents. Now, this slightly confuses me, right? They probably wanted everyone to know that shit's about to get real. But imagine you're a simple guy who has a little shop in the city center and out of nowhere some prick comes and, comes and sets fire to your little establishment. So anyway, so they get their citizens fired up. Then they look out for a trumpeteer. Everyone in Athens had to know that tomorrow there is an emergency meeting at the Ecclesia. Get the generals too. We're probably going to war. So the next day comes along. The town's herald takes a stand, says the famous lines, Tis agorevin vulete, which is a very nice Greek saying, which basically means, you who are here in the agora, if you have something to say, say it. Anyone who has something to say, come out and say it. But no one shows up, right? He says it again, Tis agorevin vulete, nothing. Bear in mind that in the front row, there are generals, orators, wealthy folks, you know, but nothing. They were pretending they can't hear him. The Mosthenes says it nicely. Quote, And he who finally took the stand, as was mostly appropriate to talk, was me. I came forward and said what I had to say. I alone of the politicians and orators didn't abandon my political duties in the face of danger. And it was I who advised you and recommended you what you should do. End quote. As of now, the Athenians did not know if Thebes and Philip had come to an agreement, and together they could attack Athens. The Mosthenes says there is no need for them to worry. If that was the case, they would have already attacked. <laughs> I guess that's one way of looking at it. Which means there is still a chance Thebes and Athens can work together. He says they have to forget whatever has happened in the past, all because between Athens and Thebes, a lot has happened. Um, a lot has happened, yes, they've, be, they've been at each other's necks, pretty much, for the most part. All able men have to join the army and immediately be sent to fight alongside the Theban army. At the same time, a ten-man embassy, along with the generals, have to be sent to Thebes and negotiate the terms of the alliance. The Ecclesia say they agree with everything the Mosthenes has said. They even ask him to be part of the embassy team to be sent. So they reach Thebes. We don't know exactly what was said, but he saw the Macedonians talking to the Thebans. He probably could have, would have known that if Thebans were to be conquered, the spoils would be given to Thebes, so the pressure is on. He has to show his most awesome self, if he failed, Athens was going to be at the mercy of Macedonia and Thebes. In the end, he must have enchanted them with his words, because even though Philip and his armies just down the road, ready to attack, they chose an alliance with Athens. 
This is, without a doubt, one of the highest points of Demosthenes' career. But let's see what the Thebans asked for in return. First and foremost, Athens can never support any autonomous city in Viotia. Viotia being, as I've said before, the region of Greece that Thebes and other cities are a part of. This is as if they're saying they recognize the hegemony or rule of Thebes within the League of Viotia. They would hand over Oropos, a small town in East Attica, and they would stop busting their balls about rebuilding Plataeas and Thespiaes, a town that they had flattened in 372 after the Battle of Teira. When it came to war on the battlefield, the Thebans had a few extra demands. Athens would pay for two-thirds of what the infantry and cavalry would cost. The navy would be their responsibility, seeing that you do so well in that department, Athens, all right, you take care of it. Thebes, though, would have complete leadership of the entire army, land and sea. All the meetings have to be held in Thebes and never in Athens. Now, bear in mind that Demosthenes, in about 10 years from now, is going to be charged for giving away more than he had to. The trial is going to be called On the Crown, a speech that I have mentioned here a number of times. It gives us a bunch of information of those crazy times. After Demosthenes returned from Thebes, he basically said, Guys, I could sit here and explain to you one by one the demands the Thebans have of us. But that would just bore the hell out of you, so just trust me. What we know now is from the accuser's side of the argument, more specifically Eschines' speech against Ctesiphondos. When Thebes and Athens sorted their stuff out, they began sending embassies across every corner of Greece asking for help against Philip. They didn't get the warmest welcome. Megara, Corinth, Achaia, Evia, Carnania and other Little Islands said they would help. All other cities either declined or simply didn't answer, meaning they wanted to stay neutral. For sure, they probably wanted Argos, Arcadia and Sparta in their team, but they weren't feeling it. And it's easy to see why. The Athenians had helped the, sacrilegi the sacrilegious Phocians just a few years ago. And now both Athens and Thebes supported the sacrilegious Amphysians. So now it's Philip's turn to try his luck in the alliance market. Most cities ignore him, apart from the Phocians. Now, as I mentioned before, Athens had offered their assistance to the Phocians in the Third Sacred War. Athens is teaming up with Thebes. The Phocians and the Thebans really hate each other. So Phocida, with the little and overworked army they have, form an alliance with Philip. Philip wanted to thank them, so he promised them he would rebuild some of their cities that were destroyed in the Third Sacred War. We know there was also an effort being made in Athens and Thebes of Philip's supporters. They wanted to come to some sort of an agreement. In Athens, he was, um, in Athens apparently, he was, he was supported by a lad called Phocionas, but the usual anti-Macedonians, Egisipos Iperides and Demosthenes, tell him, don't you dare get up and talk in the Ecclesia, your head is on the line. Turns out that's enough for someone to call it a day, right, and not speak out. Demosthenes uh, goes to Thebes. He wanted to make sure they aren't rethinking their position. But it's all going splendidly. 
Thebes had sent someone to Bithia to ask how the war was going to go, and she had talked favorably of Philip. Demosthenes tells them that once Bithia had taken Persia's side, and we all know what a shit show that turned to, and now Philip's side, so don't take her too seriously. He also says anyone who doesn't agree is one of Philip's agents and he deserves to be beaten to death with a stick. So it looks like this situation is only going to get resolved with violence. Athens and Thebes' next move are to set up their mercenary army. They get 10,000 soldiers. Charitas and Proxenos are going to be in command of these soldiers. These soldiers are going to be based just north of where we left Philip at Kitinio on a road called Graviasis Passage. Also, a Theban and Athenian power set up camp, camp in an area called Parapotamius, or on the river in English. This is on the border of Viotia and Fokida. So we see them pick tight and defending positions. Their thinking was to not allow Philip any room to develop his cavalry. These two spots are about 30 kilometers away. So if Philip decides to attack one, they are hoping that they would have enough time for the other team to defend them. Even though between the two camps there is Mount Parnassos, which would make communications slightly more difficult. Philip has his army in Elatia and Kitinio, which again is roughly 30 kilometers away from each other, but Philip was in a better position because he wouldn't have to cross Mount Parnassos, or Parnasso as we say in Greek. From October 339 to May of 338, the two opposing teams did not approach each other. They simply built and improved their defensive positions. Towards the end of spring, this changes. From Demosthenes, we learn that Philip tried to cross Kifisos, a river in Athens, and destroy the defensive lines of the Athenians and the Thebans, but he failed. In fact, he tells us of two battles, one close to the river and one in winter. He forgets to give us details about each battle, but he doesn't forget to tell us about Athenian bravery. Now, the only source for these battles is the Mosemis, so take it with a pinch of salt. Philip hasn't brought much of his army with him. He has left a considerable amount in Pella. Perhaps he wants to rest them, you know, who knows, you know, they had a long campaign in uh, Thrace, Byzantium, Benithos, and all other amazing battles we have mentioned. Others say that he has left soldiers in Macedonia to protect his citizens from barbarians, from barbarian raids. The Athenians see Philip not make a move. They see his army is slightly on the short side and think, well, that's it. You know, who cares? Uh, about Philip, you know, we got this down, we were controlling it. So they continue their festivities, their sacrifices, and all other things they do. The Mosenis was awarded a golden wreath for a second time, mind you. This shows us that Athens already considers themselves to be winners. But Philip, in June of 338, decided now was his time to attack. Some soldiers had arrived from Pella, some from Thessaly and some from other allies. He can't attack Parapotamius 
or by the river, or whatever it was called, how did they say it? Because it's narrow, as we have said. He knows he's going to have a hard time developing his phalanx and cavalry. So the only option is for him to move towards the passage of Gravias, which leads to Amphisa. So he's going to have to face mercenaries under Charitas and Proxenos. In the next episode, we're going to see what he came up with to catch them by surprise. Now, the winning review is from someone called Pan... Pandid? Panadid? Panadid? <laughs> from the United States. The... Um, Title is highly informative, exciting, and actually funny. Five stars. I have fallen in love with history podcasts after listening to History of Rome by Mike Duncan, though I have often wanted something more Hellenistic. Grew up reading Homer and often revisited because I believe there's still so much to gain from those works. This has scratched that itch. The podcast is very informative, but it's not just a recitation of facts and sources. There is a life to the to this retelling. I also love the host's modern interjections. It reminds me of hanging out with my homies. I highly recommend it. Well, that's exactly what I'm going for. Um, just a history podcast that's laid back, you know. So thank you very much, Panid Pananid. Panadid, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say your name properly. Send me an email, alexandros.cast at gmail.com or send me a message through my social platform thingies that I've put in the description. Thanks again, guys. See you later.